0: I've been a keynote speaker, panelist, technical speaker for decades at different conferences. And here's the sad thing, I don't think it has changed that much, and that is a problem.
1: Welcome to Upon Arrival, a show that uncovers stories and strategies that make up all the moving parts of business events tourism with me, Adelaine Ung. In today's fast-paced world, events have to evolve beyond mere content delivery, Because information is so easy to get and there are a lot more Zoom meetings these days, your community needs a much bigger reason to get out of the routines of their busy schedules and even book those flights and accommodation if that's part of the deal. My guest today firmly believes that conferences must adapt to thrive, yet he says it's surprising how few companies and organizations are doing so. Mark Hirschberg is a fascinating individual whose background traverses from delving into the depths of the dark web to delivering lectures at universities. He's attended numerous professional conferences and so has experienced firsthand how the entire event experience can become, well, predictable. In this first of a two-part episode we'll get to know Mark's universe and how he's bringing its various parts together to enrich his understanding of the events world. He'll also share how he sees AI impacting jobs in the events industry, and we'll learn a few strategies for up-leveling along the way. Mark, Welcome and thank you for coming on the show.
0: Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: Well, I'm here to pick your brain on events, but I first want to acknowledge that you seem to specialize in so many, many areas at a high level. So I guess as a way for our listeners to get to know you, how do you go about answering the question when somebody you've just met asks you, what do you do?
0: (laughs) I do a lot. And so it depends on who is asking me. I am known in one industry as a CTO, particularly I do fractional CTO work, a lot of work around artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. So that's a lot of work I've been doing for about 30 some years. Now I have also in parallel to that, been teaching at MIT, not a technical class, but a professional development class. And that led to my work as an author, the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. And related to that, the speaking I do at conferences and events related to professional development. Although these days, the two have actually come back together. We're recording this in 2023, AI is all the rage. And so some Mm -hmm. people ask me to wear both hats and come in and talk about AI in the workplace and what that means for our careers or for our industry. So depending on who's speaking to me, I'm a technical CTO, I am a professional development speaker and author, or I'm a combination of the two.
1: Because when I read your bio, your life sounds like a movie. You know, you're one of those double agents where you're a lecturer by day, and then at night you go catch criminals on the dark web. And I was just thinking, you know, what even is the dark web? Is that where all the scammers hang out?
0: Yes and no. The analogy I use is the dark web is like the dark alley. Now, the dark web, it's part of the internet that is not easily accessible. If you are doing something illegal, you're probably not going to do it in the middle of the well-lit street. You're going to do it in that dark back alley. Likewise, if you're doing something illegal on the internet, you're probably doing it on the dark web. But just like not all dark alleys are bad, and not everyone in a dark alley is a bad person, there are legitimate people who are on the dark web. It's just all the nefarious stuff generally takes place on the dark web too. And in one of my former roles, I used to track terrorists and cyber criminals on the dark web. So that's the James Bond part you were referencing earlier, but I was not the guy in the field. I do dance tangos, but I was not the guy in the field. I was doing it safely from New York City office.
1: Sorry, did you say tango as well? Is that something you're a competitive ballroom dancer or something?
0: (laughs) Yes, I was a competitive ballroom dancer. (laughs) One of the top ranked ones in the U.S. back when I was competing and traveled all over the country, even internationally, sometimes for competitions and events.
1: Oh, my goodness. You're one of those people that, you know, we might not even think is, is human. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is so amazing. Do you get asked, I mean, since you brought up the, the topic of AI as well, and, you know, you've got the dark web and all of that, I think the event space is pretty now looking at AI and going, well, how do we use this? Or do we need to be afraid of it? Because this is going to take over some jobs in events. What are your thoughts on that?
0: The answer to your question is yes to both parts. It will take over some jobs, but it will also help us and create better experiences for our customers and audiences. Don't be afraid in the long term, but there is a little short term disruption. So let me be a little more concrete about that. What we see every time with technology is it comes in and displaces jobs. I'm old enough to remember toll booth collectors, and some of the audience might be as well. And we'd have to drive and then slow down and wait in line and give money to the toll booth collector. Those folks got replaced by, they had these machines where you throw coins in the basket. And today we have the electronic passes. Now, 99.9% of people are very happy we have this because we don't have to slow down anymore and our commutes are faster. But there's a tiny segment of the population namely the toll booth collectors, who are not very happy that their jobs got automated away. And this happens with every new technology. A small number of people get displaced, but a large number of people benefit. However, on the whole, it's not that, well, these jobs are gone and these people are now out of luck. If you look at a larger change, farming is the example I usually use. In the U.S. at the start of the 19th century, we were about 75% farmers. And 100 years later, 25% farmers. We don't need all the farmers anymore. And because you and I are not farmers, we can do podcasts, we can do software, (laughs) we can run events, because we're not stuck on the farm picking crops, so there's enough food for everyone. So jobs will be created, opportunities will be created by this new technology. We can get rid of some of the grunt work, we can automate that away, allowing us to focus on higher value services. And the event space in particular, this is a people business. Your job isn't, oh, how do I schedule this event room? If that's what you're doing with most of your job, you might be in trouble, but you're probably not adding a lot of deep value to your clients. The value you add is, how do we create a great experience for you and the audience members? And that's where your human abilities are not going to be replaced by AI, but they will be supplemented, just like spell check has made me much better because my spelling is atrocious. So will AI tools help you be more effective in your role? The only catch is the speed of change is so fast, we might have that early disruption, that loss of jobs, and that's going to hit us sooner than the new jobs show up. And this is true, not just in events, but across all sorts of spaces. So there's a little risk to the labor market about temporary labor displacement. There will be more new jobs created than jobs lost, but it may not happen at the same time. And that's the big risk to us. So look at your job, look at what is the rote automated stuff you're doing. Hopefully you can get rid of that with AI. And then you can say, what can I do that adds the higher value to my customer? And that's where you should be focusing your career.
1: What about people who, for example, copywriters or people who work in marketing, where a lot of those parts are now being outsourced to AI? So if your job is 90% now being replaced by AI, who can often do a more reliable job, and as long as you really work on the prompts, you know, you can get some amazing work at a much faster speed and if you're also saying i mean there there is th- that time that you need to allow to to reskill or to find a new pocket within the workforce for your skills to have that value and for you to be confident with that value as well so it's a really funny space to be in right now what's your best advice for people who are finding themselves in that space where they do feel like my job could actually be threatened
0: there are certain jobs Just like a milkman, a booth collector, travel agents, where we saw a lot of them go away. But now let's look at those travel agents specifically. Again, I'm old enough to remember when I wanted to book a flight, we would call a few airlines and ask, what are your prices? We'd do this all by phone. Or you call the travel agent who can do it for you. Thank God I don't have to do that anymore. I can go to the computer and it's just I can get the information faster, more efficiently than having to call someone else. But even though we lost many of those travel agents who would say, well, here are your flight options, we still have travel agents. They're not telling me here are the flights you can choose. They're creating these higher end packages for more customized, more interesting experiences. Let's assume you're a copywriter in the event space and used to write up just standard copy about locations, about events. Yeah, that job is probably going away. Because 95% of it can now be done by a machine. They don't need you full-time, or they only need one instead of 20 of you. But you know what you can do. And we're going to talk a little about this during the show. You can take the content from the show, because you're producing mountains of content. You have all the talks. And now, of course, we can get a transcription of every talk that goes on. And we can create summaries of every talk. And we can turn that into blog posts and social media and other content. And that can be done in ways that 20 years ago, we just didn't have the capacity to do it. That would cost so much. Now that the costs have gone down, we can say, well, the two copywriters who used to just do all the copy pre-event, we only need half a person. But now we can take that one and a half capacity and create post-event content or content during the event or content in other ways, repurposing the content we create or additional content, and we can add more value to our customers. And this is, again, what we always see in technology is that as certain tasks get reduced in terms of their cost, we now have extra capacity. We're no longer on the farm, so now we can post on social media. And so you can find new ways to employ your newfound resources to add more value to your customers.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting, the untapped potential that is in repurposing content. We go to so much effort into creating the core content, but there is so much more that can, I mean, even in, in the podcast interviews that I'm doing, I'm like, this is gold. There is so much gold in these conversations And it's just limited to whoever's listening to the podcast for that amount of time. And I'm like, there's so much opportunity here to just grab things out, little snippets and things that could be turned into blog posts, even LinkedIn articles All this stuff I'm trying to still work out because I feel like I need a few more arms and legs (laughs) in order to get all of that mapped out. But the potential is is there and AI is making that process so much easier now. So I can definitely see the possibilities. It's definitely an exciting time that we live in right now. But we're talking about podcasts. I I found out somewhere that you've been a guest on some 300 podcasts. (laughs) And I also happen to know that you make yourself available till midnight, your time in New York, which was great for me. But, you know, why this drive for visibility and presence in the podcast world? And also, I know you've been a guest on several events podcasts as well.
0: Two things motivate me. I mentioned that I have these multiple personas. There's Mark, the CTO, and I build all sorts of tech companies. Then there's Mark, the instructor at MIT, and the book I put out. Here's the thing about books. Most authors, as some of your audience may know, they don't make money from selling books. The real money comes from being a coach or consultant. I am not a coach. I do not want to coach people. I have a day job, but I am very passionate about helping people with their professional efficacy. And going on these podcasts, this is my hobby. This is my interest. This is my passion. A lot of my volunteer work and my teaching, and now the book. And the podcasting is how I can help people with their professional efficacy. And that's really one of my missions in life. Now, there is a second advantage. I am a professional speaker. Even though I don't do coaching, I do do speaking. And so I do get brought in either to companies or to conferences and events. And certainly going on the podcast, it gets the word out about me. It provides some social proof and people can listen to me and hear Does this guy sound like a competent speaker? Is he someone I think can help educate our audience? So I do have some benefit that way. But I'd say really that first motivation, motivation—the helping people with their professional efficacy, that's what drives me more than anything else.
1: And the reason why you haven't launched a podcast yourself?
0: That's a very interesting question. If you look at the business models, if I was a coach, if, for example, my goal was to sell people a $5,000 coaching package, a podcast makes sense because you buy the book, say, okay, $20, the book. Yeah, this sounds interesting. Let me start listening to the guy. It's free. And after hearing someone multiple times, you start to build up the trust. You say, yeah, he's he's pretty good. And then after I've had you hear me a bunch of times, you say, okay, now I'm ready to write the big check. But I have nothing to sell. I'm not trying to sell you that $5,000 package. I'm trying to get the word out. Here's content. Yes, my book has some nominal cost. Everything else I have, I give away for free. There are articles on the website for free. There's a number of free resources. Here's how you can implement career development programs for free at your company. It's not, oh, here's some lead gen, here's how I can sell it to you. I don't even ask for your email. I also created the Brain Bump app, which I give away for free. So all this content I give away for free. So building my own audience where people, oh, I want to listen to Mark. I want to hear what he has to say. That's great. Subscribe, read the articles, follow the blog. But I'm not doing it to build you up for a conversion, which is what a lot of content marketing does, which is what a lot of podcasting and blogs do. I just have nothing to sell. (laughs)
1: it's interesting because I talk to a lot of fellow podcasters and we're all doing it for different reasons and a lot of people also come across this thing called pot fade which is when you launch maybe three or four episodes and then your podcast kind of dies out because you realize this is actually work (laughs) and it's also because you know we haven't mapped out some of those pieces that you've just talked about which is you know how does this tie back in to my overall goals How does this serve the destination I'm trying to reach with what I'm trying to create? It's excellent that you've actually spelled those things out. And just to make us think in this world where there is so much overwhelm and so many moving pieces, what are the things that are going to serve me most? So um, I appreciate that. But let's get back to the conversation about events. This is an industry that has gone through a lot of change, especially through the pandemic. Actually, take us through the changes as you've seen it over the last decade or so, because you have been writing about this topic. You have had a very keen eye on the development of this industry. How have you seen it evolve?
0: I've been a keynote speaker, a panelist, a technical speaker for decades at different conferences. And here's the sad thing. I don't think it has changed that much. That's the unfortunate part. Even (laughs) post-COVID, Yes, now, virtual is common that never used to be, and we do have hybrid events, but really, it has not changed much, and that is a problem and that's one of the things we need to talk about on the show is it does need to change because what has changed over the past twenty some years is the cost of accessing information. When I think back to the nineties when I started in my career i Got some trade journals, and when I say journals, I mean physical magazines that would get mailed to me every month. There were a couple early email lists, maybe a few websites, but really it was that trade journal where I got information. And you went to the conference because this is where you could hear big ideas, you could hear top people in your industry, you could learn new things. The cost of that knowledge transfer, the cost of that learning is now zero. Because I can listen to people on podcasts and I can read their writings and watch their videos and anything I can get from your conference, I can probably get elsewhere on the web, cheaper, faster. I can get when I want, where I want, at less cost. And by cost, that includes travel time, everything's not just money. So if your conference merely says, I will give you this information, your value proposition is diminishing. And what we need to do is make these conferences more people-oriented. And so that's what we're going to talk about. There's a couple different things we can do. But the key takeaway, conferences cannot just be, here is knowledge transfer. It needs to be about engaging with other people.
1: What about the argument that, hey, you know, the problem is that we do have too much information. It's all at our disposal. A lot of it's free. You can get a whole lot now on YouTube. And the reason why you would go to a conference is because we've sifted, we've done the work, we've, we're bringing you the cream of the crop, and this is what you need to know now for the industry so that you're in a good position to take your company to the next level or to make the right connections. What would you say to that argument?
0: That might work for people, I'm going to say, earlier in their careers, whether they are individuals who are just younger and, wow, there's so much to learn or maybe even business owners who are new to an industry, new to a business, where again, wow, there's so much to learn. But mid-career professionals and senior folks, who of course are the ones you want at your conferences because they're decision makers, and that's what gets the vendors to show up because they can do the purchasing. Those folks, we're wise enough to know what's going on, what's in the industry, what blog, what podcast, what email list is valuable, and what isn't. And even if they don't know that, they can begin to do that easily. First, as you know it, AI is coming along. AI is going to help us filter some of this and say, wow, there's 10,000 podcasts. AI, please help me pick the ones most relevant to me. But here's something simple I can do today. I can look at your conference. I can see who are your speakers. What are the conference titles? Because you've probably published your agenda to try and get me to go there great, I'm just going to Google these people and these topics, and I'll bet I can find easily 80, 90% of all that right now, this second, online for free. So the filter, maybe that works for some people, but the cost of filtering is also becoming effectively zero.
1: Yeah, some really sobering points there. So if we can no longer rely on just content and just the promise that, hey, you know, we've done all the hard work and we're presenting you with the topics that you need to know right now to be current. How do our events need to change? I mean, if you're saying that we're stuck in the stone age (laughs) almost, what are the things that you see as needing to change? And are you actually seeing attendance numbers drop off because events have not evolved as much as they should?
0: It's hard to answer the latter question because there's still we're recording this in 2023, it's post-COVID. People do want to go out, but people are also saying, you know, I don't know if I want to travel and do all this. Different industries are in different places post-pandemic. So I I don't think I have clear enough data to say there is a clear trend. I think it's still frothy and volatile and things are going to shake out for a little while. But to the core question, there are six things I recommend conferences do.
1: Well, I look forward to that, which will be in part two of this interview published next week, because there's quite a lot to get through. But give us a teaser. What are the six?
0: E-perceptions, networking, business development, location-specific activities, virtual follow-ups, and professional development. These are six things you can add at little or no cost.
1: We'll be going through Mark's six ideas next week that you can add to your event almost for free. Hope you'll join me then. Don't forget, if you found value in today's show, please click the follow button if you'd like to be notified when a new episode drops. And if you've ever considered launching a podcast with a strategy to land in Apple's top 200 charts in the first week, feel free to send me an email at uponarrivalpodcast at gmail.com and we'll explore how we can make that happen. Catch you next week for part two to uncover more stories and strategies for a successful future. Till then, cheers.